0: TNKR Media. Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, our 15th season showcasing stories from outstanding business people presented by Video Canada. My name is Sandrine Rastello standing in for Dan Del Mar, along with Mike Newton of Video Canada. Hello, Mike.
1: Hey, Sandrine, how are you?
0: I'm good. Great to be back on the show with you today.
1: Most definitely.
0: So this week, we'll be with Patrice Demers and Marie-Josée Baudouin, who will take us through their journey from running a Montreal beloved patisserie to leaving it all behind, opening a pop-up restaurant in New York City, and now reinventing themselves, the 14-seat restaurant that just opened in Pointe Saint-Charles, another show that will make us hungry for sure. I'm really interested in this idea of knowing when to close a business and, and finding a model that feels right.
1: Yeah, I think you've got to move in that direction of passion, but the problem is a lot of people move with passion and and don't always have add the practical element to it. So I think one of the one of the things we will see from from Patrice and and Josie is this discussion of you know thinking through the passion and what that looks like. Um, I think they've also got a very new business model uh, for the restaurant industry, which I think is fascinating uh, and is going to start to uh, maybe be the beginning of some of the things that need to shake up in terms of reservations and no shows.
0: Yeah, I think it really answers some of the current problems of the industry. Um, later in the show, we will speak with Carla Lupo, tax partner at Video Canada. He'll talk to us about tax considerations in the restaurant business. But first, let's take a look at some current events. So um, first, let's talk about AI, a subject I know you like. You often discuss with Dan. We have a couple of stories here. There's uh, this BBC story about uh, Chad GPT getting access to up-to-date information. And We know that ChatGPT, GPT until now... Um, was trained using data that went back only uh, up to September 2021. Possibly a game changer there. What do you say?
1: Uh, definitely, I think you know the the access information of anybody that that is on just an open uh, open chat platform. that's not on a premium. Uh, anytime you uh, you you log something in that required an updated information. So you know, I like my horses and my horse racing. So I would go on and say, you know, who are who are the entries running at Santa Anita or Belmont tomorrow? And it would say to me, you know, unfortunately, I don't have access to up to date information. So that'll change going forward. Right now, the uh, the option is really on the premium users. So they're going to start seeing how they can populate and gain the information from this. So AI is is still in its, you know, it's in its infancy stage in terms of utilization uh, when you get to the chat GPT type model, Uh, though it has been around for a long time. uh, What we're starting to see now is a real push towards regulation and safety and a whole bunch of things that I think are going to continue to to swell, I think, over the next 12 months as people want to start using this for more practical purposes.
0: And yeah, the, the other article speaking of which is, you know, how uh, from CBC, how Ottawa has unveiled a voluntary code of conduct for the use of advanced generative AI systems in Canada. Uh, that said, it's a voluntary code. And, and also, you, you remember, there was this call for a six-month pause by some very famous people in AI. What happened? Nothing. Uh, so what do you make of this sort of, uh, you know, code of conduct?
1: Well, I think this is, you know, is like the you go back to years when they had the open source code when people were just, you know, trying to populate the whole uh, exercise and 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 have this wider base of of people that are using it from a practical perspective, and it's not just government regulation. So this exercise, in terms of the voluntary code of conduct, is really to push a lot of the bigger companies and the users, and I know BlackBerry and there was a number of other companies that have signed on to this, and really the goal of this is a continuity of you know be Bill C20 which goes back to June 2022 so you know almost 15 months ago and when, when the Canadian government tried to start regulating some of this um and and this whole new code is basically a critical bridge between now and and when the legislation would be coming into force so it's almost like the dating scene if you will for uh some some code uh, code of ethics with regards to AI and the code outlines measures that are aligned with and basically they go to six core principles accountability safety fairness and equity transparency human oversight and monitoring validity and robustness. Now, wow. I mean, that's so vast and so wide. And, you know, part of this uh, revolves around uh, privacy issues. Right, that have, that have been put in place. So, uh, a part of it revolves around what is this going to mean to employment? What is this going to mean to certain jobs? Uh, how is it going to be applied? So, there's still a huge, huge unknown uh, within the, uh, the chat GPT type environment that, you know, that Microsoft, being one of the biggest players in terms of development, is really looking to try and move forward and take this in a direction that has a practical element to it. To this point, it's pretty much just been the research side of things and it's been the what-ifs and the what-ifs and the what-ifs. Now we need to find a way in order to bring this into to use. And, and I think that most companies are now... Uh, challenged with how are we going to use this? And I certainly know with BDO, this has been something that's been going on for some time in terms of development and and working forward, but it's still this, what is the governance governance associated to all of this? And I think this is where hopefully this, uh, this new voluntary process is, is looking to kind of steer us in the right direction.
0: And you know, we're talking about a, a code for AI companies, but what about a code for users, right? <laughs> I guess it's up to each company, but it's an important reflection to have for sure.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that the chat GPT model, I mean, ultimate, the regenerative, regenerative AI is is the usage of machine learning, which is the more information that you put into it, obviously, the more it continues to learn, except a lot of people don't realize that in order for it to learn, uh, it's taking the information that you're typing in. So if you're typing in private information, well, that private information finds its way into the machine learning, and this is now becoming a major, major issue within uh, Canada in terms of privacy matters and, and, and how we're going to address this going forward. It's Nice to populate it, but what are you going to populate with? Um, client information. If you're if you're a, pro- a professional firm, how do you protect all of that, and how do you keep that under control? So there's still a lot to come in this area.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: absolutely. Uh, the second article we have today is another of your favorites because it's linked to the return to office and the office itself. Um, it's uh, it's based on comment. It's an article at Inc. In Inc. It's based on comment by a New York City real estate developer, Michael Spo, and he sees a bright future for the high end real estate office market. So if you want people to come to the office, raise the bar in terms of comfort, art, excitement. If you don't do that, you'll struggle to find tenants. Um, is it really transforming an office into an art gallery that can bring people back? <laughs> like, I mean.
1: Well, there's, there's a lot of plays in this, and this goes back to, to something that started a few years ago, which is when we started to see these multiple use, and, and the Four Seasons and a number of other the big, big hotels started to uh, populate uh, office buildings and, and residential buildings with the top floors being uh, addressed to some of the hotel. Why? That way you would be sharing the pool, you would be sharing gyms, you'd have this multiple user facility that allows certain people who normally wouldn't have access to those facilities, especially from an office. Perspective: the business side to now have access to to a lot of <clears throat> excuse me a lot of amenities that is more attractive. I think you know his his uh, Michael Schwoz commentary is 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 feeding off of that to a certain degree. What worries me is you know not every building can afford to be uh, an A plus building, and you know right now uh, and, and Montreal's seen this over time that when we put in new buildings, if you don't bring in new business all you're doing is moving tenants around. You're moving you know, business tenants around. So you go from a B or a B plus to an A plus. Great. It's wonderful for the A plus. Well, what happens to B and B plus if you either can't bring the amenities up to attract or a city doesn't bring in new business? So I think a lot of these things, New York City is having its own challenges bringing enough people back into the city. Uh, and I think that anything, and we've seen this in the real estate market, whether it's residential or commercial, there's always a demand for high end. But what happens to the rest? What happens to those B buildings? What happens to that environment if as a community, we are not building new business, if we are discouraging business from taking, and this is a whole big conversation we could spend hours on in taxation, in subsidy, and how do we bring entrepreneurial spirit back? Because that's the only way you're going to fill up those other buildings. And having said all of that, I don't even know where to begin in terms of trying to bring people back to some of those buildings. Let's just get business into them first.
0: And without even mentioning a corporate culture, right? Because uh, having a barista doesn't mean employees are happy. Uh,
1: uh, you Totally. I, I You know, there's there, there certain experiences that we can appreciate, but, you know, you bring in a barista two days a week, what you're going to see is the office is full those days a week. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, so
1: it, it, you, there's only so many things you can afford to do to make the experience either home or hotel-like. And I think like everything else, we will likely go through a cycle, uh, but it's certainly not over so quickly. That's for sure.
0: And that's a swift transition to our third story today from a psychology today. It's got to focus on emotional intelligence, another topic that's dear to your heart. Can it be learned? Can it be measured? Do emotionally intelligent people perform better? Is it still an overlooked quality in the corporate world, do you think, emotional intelligence?
1: Yeah, it's an overlooked quality because it is just so hard to measure and assess. There's no real test associated as there is an IQ test or there's a typing test or whatever that scenario is. From an emotional intelligence component, it, it really is the way you address things. So what I think what's involved is people need to start making a more conscious effort to be looking for these things when they're looking to employ someone. The problem you have is... It's very difficult for me to look for that quality if I don't understand that quality to begin with, you know. It's the old expression of the blind leading the blind, right? To a certain perspective, and 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 I think this continues to be a challenge. So I think the awareness and the recognition of what's there, and you know, they use the, the for, for emotional intelligence, they use the rule, a, 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 an acronym called RULER, R U L E R, which is recognize understand, label, um, the ability to express your emotions and then to regulate your emotions. And if you can find within that area, I think what you're doing is you're opening the door for the ability for people to say, hey, you know what? I recognize that something there. And even if it's not a skill that has been honed yet, the recognition itself goes goes a long way. And I do believe that people who are emotionally intelligent are more successful. I think they they may be. May, it it may or may not be a financial uh, quantum, but it certainly is in terms of relationship skills and people skills and that ability to manage people, which we know in the long term ends up being a financial one as well.
0: Is this something that's on the radar and more and more leaders that you meet in in your business?
1: Most definitely. Uh, And I think, uh, like I said, in some cases, it's getting those leaders to recognize what emotional intelligence is in themselves. You know, I always say, if somebody says to me, well, what's emotional intelligence? Narrow it down for me. So it's your ability to walk into a room and recognize how you affect that room. What, you know, what, what comportment do you bring? Do do people see you there? Are you, are you standing out? Are you loud? Are you obnoxious? Are you bringing positivity? So, you know, some things, emotional intelligence or not, it's not It's not positive that makes you emotionally intelligent. It's that ability to address it, regulate it, and control it that ultimately does.
0: And as you know, something very important in interviews as well. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. Uh, coming up, we'll introduce you to our entrepreneur, Patrice Demers, and Marie-Josée Baudoin, his life and business partner, who will talk to us about their crazy journey from becoming Montreal's favorite patisserie to leaving it all behind, opening a pop-up restaurant in New York City, and now reinventing themselves with a 14-seat restaurant that just opened in Pointe-Saint-Charles. Patrice and marie jose welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We have so many things uh, to discuss today, but let's start with your new venture, Less than a year after closing Patrice Pâtissier, you're back with a 14 seat formula. You offer dinner, tea, cooking classes. Where did this idea come from?
3: Uh, yeah, we after we closed the pastry shop in August last year, we took a few months off. I was teaching a bit also at culinary school. Uh, we went for vacation in Italy, and we just took time off to really reflect on what we wanted to do after that big project. Because the pastry shop was open for almost nine years, so we kind of needed that break to really like thought about uh, what would be the next steps, and we we realized pretty soon that we're missing uh, working in a restaurant, and our passion about the business is is really about restaurant. We love going to eat out, we love to travel, so we we start thinking about how we could uh, put all our passion together for wine, for pastry, for hospitality also, because this is what we love. We love to serve guests and we thought about opening something really small because one of the main, uh, I will say, challenge of the pastry shop was the uh, the many staff we had on, the, on in the last few years and we knew it was getting harder and harder to find some, some staff. So we kind of thought, like, why don't we open something just by ourselves with no staff, just the two of us. Yeah.
1: So we'll we'll come back to Saballlo in the second half of this. let's let's take a little bit of a trip down memory lane, I guess is you know, where did you guys uh, where did you come from? What's your history, the education? and what what brought you to starting uh, your first pastry shop to begin with?
4: Uh, Well, if I talk for myself, my father used to own restaurants. So I was, um, I kind of grew up in a restaurant. So it was very, Natural for me. I then studied in DHQ, did a sommelier degree, and then just started working in restaurant. That's where we met 15 years ago. Um, at La Lou was, mm-hmm. was a nice bistro on a Des street. Yeah. Um, and then we just work in different restaurant and always with more and more responsibilities. And we were at, uh, Les Quatre Coups together with a friend. And then we decided to, um, move on from that project. And then the pastry shop came up and then we kind of like, went into it Uh, but then yeah it just grew bigger and bigger and then at some point we just realized that was not what we really wanted to have that like big business with big volumes um you know big team and everything
2: yeah
3: and i also been working in the business for more than 20 years Uh, i started doing mostly pastry but also savory cooking which is something that most people don't know but i love doing savory food also so I work mostly in a restaurant for almost 15 years, and then we, uh, we had the pastry shop. and now we're going back a bit more toward the restaurant.
1: Maybe define savory foods. I think savory foods something that has flavor to it and, the, and that I enjoy. So is that what you're referring to? or is this a different type of cooking?
3: Uh, yeah, they're just doing like not just only pastry because m- most people think I'm only do pastry. Even though in most of the restaurant I worked at, I was also like involved in this in the savory food, in this in the the other dishes of the menu. And at the pastry shop, also we're doing lunch, we're doing brunches, so I was also in charge of that part of the menu. But I think in the mind of many many people, they don't know I I can cook, uh, <laughs> not just dessert but also like regular food. So this is also why, just before opening the pastry shop, we did that two months pop up in in New York. So uh, there's that really cool restaurant called Figurance. Uh, they have one in Paris also, and they receive a guest chefs. So every two or three months, they they change the chef. So they have a they have a team in house. They have a, they have some cooks. They have. A, a team in a dining room, but every two or three months, they have a new chef coming in who's doing his own menu. So we were there for the month of May and June of this year. And for me, it was kind of my first chance to do an old tasting menu by myself and being also able to see like all the guests will react. And it was fun because in New York, like most people don't know that I do mostly pastry. So it was kind of nice to be able to serve my food to people who don't have that in, in their mind. Yeah. So you basically went
1: incognito in New York is what you're saying is you, nobody nobody really knew who you were and you could do your own thing without,
3: uh, without some baggage. <laughs> yeah, this is what we thought at the beginning. But then we're <laughs> kind of surprised that many, many people from Montreal and from Quebec came to see us like on the weekend, on Friday, Saturday night the dining room was almost half full of people from quebec most of the time so that was really fun but for us also it gave us a, a good like it it confirms for us that people were expecting also something like and that wanted to taste like an old menu by myself like if they were willing to come to new york like we thought, like yeah opening a restaurant in montreal should be it should be fine Yeah. It's funny, it's an interesting thing. I mean, for years and years,
1: I have said the two best places in North America for food are New York City and Montreal. So I guess you I guess you hit that on the, uh, right on the head.
0: <laughs> I was just wondering, and you know, I was of course one of the customers at Patrice Patissier and shocked like everybody else when you closed. Um, and I'm sure it was a hard decision to make. Was there a particular moment, something when you said, okay, this just happened and that convinced you to, or is it something that was brewing Um, Can you explain a little bit more of the decision? A
4: little little bit of both. Like there was a part of us, um, after a couple of years at the pastry shop that we realized that we really missed the restaurant side of it that's it's really where we were coming from and that you know it was a really different business it was more like was closer to retail than to restaurants so that was different um but then I'd say um in the last year um I guess of course I mean we were doing like crazy weeks like crazy hours but then a couple of things happened that made us think about our decision and then our lease was coming to an end so all that put together made us make the decision but I mean we're we're lucky enough that we felt that about at the same time like there was no like big discussion between the two of us Uh, we both at some point felt um, in the last month that you know we've made it for yeah almost nine years and that was it and we were like really okay with that
3: but yeah, the pastry shop for both of us, it was the first time we when we opened it, it was the first time we're working in a pastry shop. Like in all my life before that, I only worked in restaurants. So it was kind of a big challenge at the beginning. And we kind of cr- realized that kind of quickly, yeah, after a few months, that it will not be that easy. It will be way more tough than we thought. Uh, I think we succeed at the end for sure. But we realized also that this is not what we love the most, like uh, doing that many customers every day, uh, doing that high volume, even though we're trying to do really, really high quality at the same time was really, really tough. Yeah. What did you
1: find was the biggest uh, challenge or the biggest change going from the history of, of regular, if you will, restaurants to the patisserie? What was that biggest culture
3: shock for you? For sure, in a restaurant, you have maybe like two hours to establish like a relationship with your customers, with the people eating your food. But in a pastry shop, it's so fast. People come in, they they choose their dessert and and they go. And then you don't know what they're going to do with the pastry after either. Maybe they're going to decide to eat their cake only three days later. Uh, which is for me something really tough to uh, accept because when I do pastry, everything is about freshness. Everything was like made on the same day, served on the same day. But if somebody decided to eat their cake like three days later, for sure, the cake is not the same. It's not the same experience. Uh, and for me, that's that was a tough part about the pastry shop.
1: It's it's almost like reputation management, right? In a restaurant, you can control it while you're sitting there. The moment they leave your shop and take something with them, uh, you no longer have control of of
3: anything. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. And
4: I would add too, because we've always worked in more like a high-end restaurant before that had reservations. So, you know, we would know like, oh, tonight we're waiting on 65 guests or 85 guests. But then at the pastry shop, that was just like, we opened the door at 930 and we don't know if we're going to do 200, 300, 400 customers going to walk in. And then, you you know, you you want to have enough dessert for everybody, but not too many so you don't lose anything. So that was a big, big part of very challenging at the beginning um, to manage how many guests would walk in every day. And I, I guess that's
0: the perfect moment
4: to explain us the spirits and the shape of Sabayon.
3: So yeah, we uh, like we said, we wanted to open a restaurant. So we started uh, looking for places a few months ago and we found a really nice spot in Point Saint Charles where we live like for the last uh, more 12 years. 12 years. So we found a really nice spot. And we had in mind to open something just the two of us with no staffs so we can like we we thought about it and we say like 14 covers should be a right amount of of people we could serve just by ourselves if we do a tasting menu so the concept of sabayon is that we do tasting menu three nights a week on thursday friday and saturday night for 14 guests it's a small tasting menu six courses uh, it's a surprise menu, so don't, guests don't know what they're going to eat. Uh, my food revolves a lot about around vegetables, uh, some fish, some seafood. Uh, we work with small producers, uh, so it's really, really, really se- seasonal. Uh, the fun part also about Sabayon is the tea time that we do now on Friday and Saturday in the afternoon. So this is something kind of new. Uh, I love when I go to Paris to go in those big, big hotels to try tea times. It's it's getting really, really big and popular over there. So we thought about doing a really personal version of tea time. So it's three courses of dessert only served with three teas that are chosen by marie José. So it's really a pairing between the dessert and the tea. So that's really something really fun. And that was the first part of Sabayon that we start a bit more than a month ago uh, already. And then we also give a few classes. So a few nights every month, we're gonna do like either pastry classes or cooking classes, or even also wine tasting classes. So you touched on something uh,
1: in the first half about uh, management, managing staff, managing inventory, and and it brings up the thought that you know Montreal is probably in North America one of the last major food uh, cities that does not. Um, take a credit card as reservation and charge for no shows. I know that's going to change in the near future um, and I'm I'm going to assume that for anybody who's been in the in- restaurant industry this is this is a major major hurdle I guess uh, going in the past.
4: Uh, Yes. Uh, Well, the main problem being uh, no show. So people reserving and not showing up. Um, And that's, you know, like in a restaurant, like if you have like, even like 50 or 60 seats, like, I mean, your margin, your profit margin is like that table of two, that table of four. It's not, you know, um, so two or three table not showing up is really like you're losing money, even though like, you know, like 45 guys showed up. Um, So for us, at 14 seats, we clearly could not assume having no shows. Um, so we decided to go uh, with a reservation policy that people buy tickets uh, like a show. Uh, we de- really decided to manage uh, the project like a venue, uh, like you know, if we go to a concert. So when you reserve at Sabayon, you pay um, uh, your ticket for the price of the menu. Uh, so if you reserve for the night, it's $115 per person. For tea time, it's $55 per person. Uh, and then Um, you have up to one week um, prior to your reservation to cancel. Uh, If it's, you know, two days after before your reservation, you do like you would do for hockey ticket or for, you know, a concert at... uh, um, somewhere in town so you would you know sell it to your neighbor or give it to your brother and you know it's your responsibility so we really decided to take the problem and make you know like find kind of a solution for us and and we were really expecting comments about uh, the customers and so far i don't think we've had any comments like everybody understand, you know, and, and yes, so we've been, I mean, we're lucky, of course, I don't think a hundred seat restaurant could do that, Uh, but for 14 seats and because we have a unique menu, so it's a set price, everybody, you know, has the same um, set menu with the same price. um, It's easy, of course, um, you know, a restaurant that you, have an a la carte menu, it will be way more complicated, but I think we need to see more option and different business model that's not always a restaurant that's a loser in it. So I I think we're going to see more and more business model uh, in that direction.
1: I I know there's been a big push lately in the restaurateur side of things to to move in that direction. Right now, uh, you know, most people that there are a few restaurants that do it and they're, they're shunned for it. Um, you know, if you ever book a reservation in New York City or in LA, I mean, that's that comes with the territory, and you got to give up at least the minimum of whatever fifty dollars or whatever whatever that amount is. So, you know, it's it, it's well worth it. And I think, unfortunately, especially coming out of COVID and the changes that everything happened from the restaurant industry, it's 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 not an easy industry to live in.
4: No.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: And you, you were mentioning you, you were going to see more and more of this. Are you hearing from fellow restaurateurs, uh, you know, for feedback and how that's working for you? Do you think you're setting a trend?
4: I think so. We had a lot of restaurant, um, like friends that have restaurants that were like curious about it, that ask us questions. So I can definitely say that a lot of them are thinking about it.
3: Yeah, because right now the problem in, in the province is that a deposit is illegal because so even... Reservation platform like Rizzi that is really, really popular in city like New York City. They had to take that off their platform because in New York, yeah, in New York, like when you do a reservation, restaurants have the option, but most restaurants are going to put that deposit uh, on a credit card when you make the reservation. But that's illegal in the province of Quebec. So I I know it's there's a lot of pressure going on the government to change that. Uh, because I think, yeah, it should be the restaurant that decide and uh, not the government for sure. Yeah.
1: Well, I think the boutique nature of yours, uh, it lends itself to moving in that direction, as you explained. I think there's a, there's going to be a big gap between there and say, you know, some of the the larger restaurants in terms of what that looks like. And, and the only way you're going to be able to get it off of the illegal list, I guess, is to have, uh, is to have a major push. And, and, and you know, we're kind of harping on it, but it's a, it's a significant element here to trying to run a restaurant. I mean, you like you mentioned, uh, Marie José, your, your margins are not that large. They're very tiny. And, you know, people don't realize that when they walk into a restaurant that, you know, you guys can uh, make or break a night on on a very small, uh, you know, very small difference. What, you know, how, how, how do you live with that? How does, how does that, how does that, make, mm-hmm. you know, you got to sleep at night, I guess. How does that work?
4: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely in most restaurateurs, I think, a big part of passion. Uh, we do it really more out of passion than of a business interest. But then I think we all find our ways. And I think that's one part that we're that's really been improving since COVID, um, that we kind of had a time to think. And then that, you know, some restaurants like realized, like finally had time to like, you know, look more into their food costs, into their labor costs. And then you just have to like manage better and more efficiently. So, but yeah, it's definitely not an easy business.
1: So can I, can I walk in and just order uh pet to go or is this all
4: i don't know really we we so we're working on um reservation only base so for every first wednesday of the month we release the reservation for the next month so first uh wednesday of uh october we're going to release november uh and then so we only so we sell 14 tickets for every event. And then we expect those 14 people to uh, walk in at the time they they reserve uh, their ticket. Um, So we don't have anything to sell, to take out, like at the pastry shop, like no coffee, no pastries. Um, And then we cannot take, you know, like, oh, like one more (laughs) table of two one night because somebody walked in. It's like, you know, we have 14 portion of fish, which is I think another way for us because it's such on a small scale to avoid all the 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 losses and just to have like you know so we have fourteen guests so Patrice bought like enough fish to have fourteen portions so
1: and and I guess you you don't have anybody standing at the door right there's no wait line uh, no physical wait line exactly. so, and we, you know and it and would, because we, we don't
3: have any no show we don't need to overbook because that's a thing lots of restaurants do right now because they know they're gonna have no show that is they they overbook so this is why sometimes you wait a bit at the door. Even though you have a reservation, because the restaurant didn't add any choices, then taking more reservation than what they can handle. Yeah. I you know I, I look at this and I say this is an experience. Right.
1: Sabino is an experience. It's not necessarily going out for dinner. I mean, like you said, it's 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 kind of got an element of the show and the pre-purchase of a ticket. No standing in line like it's it's it, it catered to you. It, it, it's it's it, it's it's a relatively new uh, model. I and mean, uh, hopefully this is going to keep carrying on for us, not just yeah, yours, but maybe a few more other popping up.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for us, that was really the way that we wanted people to feel like we were having them at home for a nice dinner.
0: They work out of passion, and they found a model that works for them, and I'm sure will work for us too. Patrice Demers and Marie-Josée Baudoin, ex-Patrice Patissier, non-co-owners of Sabayon. And we'll have their one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs in a few minutes. But first, let's check in with our video subject matter expert guest, Carlo Lupo, tax partner at Video Canada. Hi, Carlo.
2: Hi, Sandrine. Thank you very much for having me.
0: So we are staying on topic today with a focus on tax considerations for the restaurant business. Quebec has a tax credit to foster the retention of experienced workers. Uh, It's interesting to many restaurateurs, I'm sure. Can you tell us more?
2: Sure. So this isn't a credit that's specifically designed for the restaurant industry. It's designed for most industries. But given that the restaurant industry is one of the bigger industries uh, in the economy, Uh, this is a very beneficial credit to them. It's a refundable credit, meaning they'll get it refunded regardless of whether they have any income tax or profit uh, to declare for the year. Uh, It's designed to help employers that are paying contributions on employees that are age 60 or older. The tax credit starts at $1,250 for uh, employees age 60 to 64 and goes up to a maximum of $1,875 for employees age 65 and older. Uh, The only caveat in that is that as the employer is larger and has more payroll, the credit is reduced. And if you get um, employers that have $7 million of payroll or more, that credit effectively is zero. So this is a credit that really targets the small, medium sized business, which can uh, be a significant amount considering the age population of Quebec and the difficulty in hiring younger people, it would be a great incentive for those to, to uh, hire and retain uh, more experienced workers.
1: So, Carla, many years ago, uh, you know, the the Quebec government moved to taxing tips, whether you reported them or you didn't, uh, and it created quite a stir within the within the restaurant industry. Um, I guess there was obviously a lot of lobbying, there was a lot of pressure, and Quebec moved to a tax credit for reporting of tips. Mm-hmm. Um, so, maybe give us a little bit of insight of, of how that works, and 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 just you know, what what is the benefit to this?
2: Sure. Well, w- one thing I wanted to say is most credits that uh, the government gives you are taxed. So I don't want people to think that you can get a tax credit from the government and it be uh, not taxable. But specifically the tax credit for TIPS, this is targeting regulated establishments generally to be understood uh, as restaurants. These are situations where the employer is collecting tips and they have a sharing agreement with their employees where part of the tips are going to be retained by the employer and part of them are going to be paid to the employees. The understanding is that this is additional remuneration to the employee. The employer has to pay payroll tax on that. Um, It does come out as being a cost because you can imagine if you're collecting You know, $50,000 of tips and paying it to an employee or employees, it's costing you more once you factor the payroll taxes. So there is um, a 75% tax credit, uh, rather a a tax credit that is on 70% of the employer contributions relating to the tips to sort of compensate for the fact that there's a cost to them for the sharing of tips with the employees. It is a refundable credit. So again, the restaurant doesn't have to have income or doesn't have to Uh, have tax payable. It's just a flat out uh, refund that they get at the end of the year um, as a result of this. Carlo, this is corporate level.
1: None of this this applies to the individuals, to the people working. They're going to get it by way of, there's no tax credit on their tax return for them if they're tax workers.
2: This is just additional remuneration. It's no different than if I paid the employee an additional salary. Uh, This is really just to, to, um, I guess, in French, as we would say, dédommager or or uh, mitigate the cost of the payroll taxes associated with the amount uh, of the tips that are being paid and shared with uh, with the employer.
1: Last point, because I know we're running out of time. Um, <laughs> the restaurant industry has always uh, been, I guess, notorious on, on and on the radar of the government authorities for tax audits. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about uh, about this area?
2: Sure, and and this goes into the point uh, from the previous segment about. Um, younger entrepreneurs, younger chefs that are starting up a business, you know they only know what they know, which is to make great meals. But then they get into the context of, I have to run a business. I need paperwork. I need payroll. I need uh, invoices. And I think a lot of that is easy target for the government, as well as the fact that there's always been some little bit of an element of nefarious practice in, in the industry itself. So from, from the point of view of an audit, I would just recommend make sure you keep your your things in order. Have a good bookkeeping system. Have a good filing system. Make sure you have everything papered. Um, Monitor your employees. I think we're hearing more and more nowadays in in the news about employees stealing inventory from uh, their employers because of rising food costs. Monitor that. And I think if you have good records and, and you know what's going on in your business and are cooperative with the government, you'll find the government being a lot more understanding of your situation and not really trying to beat you down for all the money that you have uh, to fork over to them.
0: Thanks for joining us, Carlo. Don't forget, you can read more thought leadership and expert advice from the BDO team at video.ca.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks,
1: Carlo.
0: As we come to the end of the show, let's ask our entrepreneurs, Patrice Demers and Marie-Josée Baudouin, co-owners of Sabayon, for their one piece of advice for inspiring
3: entrepreneurs. I think the most, the the best advice I can give is just to do your homework and go see what other businesses in your, in what you want to open are doing. Uh, We saw the pastry shop. Lots of people were, who wanted to do pastry at, who love to do pastry at home and were looking to open a pastry shop. And they didn't ask, I think, the, the right question. So, like, if you like pastry, if you like ice cream and you want to open something like that, just go in your own city and other city uh, to see what's already there, uh, see the prices, what people are asking for. Talk to people, ask the right questions. Uh, what are the profits? What are how, how does it cost opening a business like that? Most people who open business don't have any idea how much money they need to open a pastry shop, how much money they need to open a, a restaurant.
4: Yeah, I would go in the same um, sense that Patrice was going in like just taking experience. If we we talk especially about restaurant, uh, we see a lot of young chefs sometimes that want to have their own restaurant just because they want to do their own menu and they don't want to have a boss. Uh, But then they've never really managed other staff or managed, uh, you know, a food cost. And then, you know, you have to do paychecks and then pay your taxes and then all this like other uh, part of having a business that it's just not because you have your own restaurant that you're doing the whole menu. So I would say about, yeah, taking the time, taking experience, uh, learning, um, asking your colleagues, especially in the restaurant business, we're really friendly with each other. We're always helping each other. Um, So, but I would say, yeah, to take the time and really do your own work, as Mattrice was saying, and really making your research uh, before opening, not after.
1: I, I would say, Sandrine, that that sounds like somebody who's lived through a few experiences in life. That's uh,
4: that's, <laughs> that's called passion, just... passion
1: and practicality all in one, uh, all in one mouthful.
4: Yes,
0: yeah. I was just going to say you obviously have done yours. So uh, thank you very much, Patrice and marie jose for joining us this week on Inspiring Entrepreneurs and best of luck uh, with Sabayon. Not that you need any. I uh, can't wait to try it. Thank you so much thank for you. inviting us. Mike, any final thought or? I'm hungry. <laughs> So am I, second week in a row.
1: I know, I know. This is what happens. You know, sometimes we do the technology ones and, you know, you come out going, oh, I got a great idea, but this one now makes me hungry.
0: (laughs) Next week on Inspiring Entrepreneurs by Video Canada, our guest is Chloe Ryan, CEO and founder of Acrylic Robotics. Her intelligent robots enable artists to replay their brush strokes with real paint on canvas, making it easier for them to make a living and democratizing artwork. A reminder that you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. Thanks, Mike. See you next week.
4: This has been a production of TNKR Media.
0: Good talk.